Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. There are an estimated 1,000 people in Tennessee living with Huntington's disease and another 5,000 at risk. It's a neurological disorder with symptoms like personality changes, mood swings, and depression. Over time, someone with Huntington's will experience a decline in mental and physical abilities. And as of right now, there is no cure. Later this hour, we'll learn what it's like to live with Huntington's and care for folks who do. Plus, we'll learn about Nashville's level one clinic for HD patients and their families. But first, it feels like it's been a while since we've talked with our friends at our sister station, WNXP. So today, we're going to hear about the latest local music that's been capturing their attention. Here to break it down for us is WNXP editorial director, Julie Height. Julie, thanks for being here. How's it going? It is great. It's always good to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So... Let's take a look back. July ended somehow, and like the month flew, flew by. And July's artist of the month was Soccer Mommy. Tell us about her music. Well, Soccer Mommy is, at this point in her career, a, a pretty well-known indie rock institution. I mean, people, people who are lovers of indie rock and especially of songwriters that really get into all kinds of you know, trippy imagery and really dark corners in their in their writing and mm. their album making have loved Sophie Allison's music for a while now, all over the country, all over the world. So what we tried to do was really connect the dots between um, her experiences growing up in Nashville and starting to make music in Nashville and continuing to make music in Nashville and tell the story from that fresh perspective, kind of grounded. And so I got to ride around with her in the same Subaru that she first started touring in and go to a DIY venue and drive through her old neighborhood and go to a studio where she recorded the album. And, you know, so, yeah, we were we were trying to um, tell the story in a fresh way that people in Nashville could really grab onto and own and understand in a different way. Give me a quick highlight of what you learned about her coming up here. Well, I mean, I I learned that she was really serious about, uh, you know, the excitement that she got out of shaping a song and then trying to figure out how to play it with another musician at a very young age, like third grade. You know, she was starting starting bands with her neighbors and experimenting with recording. So she got into it early and it was it was, you know, how it it just fired up her brain to try and take lyrics and melodies and then see what she could do recording it. She was tinkering with that stuff uh, from a really young age. So it was it was cool to think about think about how she was, you know, obsessing over craft in ways uh you know, like an elementary school student. I love and, that. And she studied jazz guitar at Nashville School of the Arts. Not a lot of people know that either. Mm-hmm. So. I love that. In third grade, I was obsessed with becoming a ninja. 
That yeah. is, uh, I think that would be a good, you know, side hustle for you. Don't eliminate that possibility from your mind. Okay. Okay. I won't. So that was the artist of the month for July. Now let's turn to the record of the week. Julia Gomez's album, Aren't We All So Incomplete? What makes her stand out to you? Well, um, I have been trying to track Julia Gomez's music down for eight, nine, ten months now, <laughs> hmm. uh, because I think there were some tracks uploaded to SoundCloud last year, and I was aware of this music maker who was writing and playing and producing, and not too long out of uh, Belmont, actually, like a Belmont grad who studied songwriting and recording and things like that there, and so... Just I'd you know heard little bits and pieces and and tracked her down, found out you know what she was up to and had stayed in touch while she went through the drama of figuring out how to finish an album when you're having to record you know after your day job in mm. in your apartment that's not soundproof or finding other places to record like a friend's. Um, storage facility studio and things like that. True DIY self-sufficiency. But I just found it really exciting, the things that I had heard from her, her musical ideas. And so I'd been checking in, emailing every, you know, every couple of weeks. How's that album coming? When's that album coming? When are you going to send it to me? And it's just full of ideas and possibilities. I think I wrote it was just bursting with with ideas because she's trying out all these different production aesthetics and, you know, building the tracks herself around these very pop, very sturdy pop songs that she writes, too. And then I really wanted to get into her story and learn about that she has, you know, her her late father played music and she has an uncle um, who is a very revered trumpet player in orchestral settings, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that side of her family is um, first generation Cuban, Spanish American, um, so that's part of that's part of her identity too. And yeah. Okay. Let's listen to a clip of her song Night Drive. This production style, it's a little bit haunting, but yet also very bright. I hear a lot of influences in here. They, she, they, they handle all of the music creation themselves, right? Most of it, yes. Um, yes, Julia Gomez is very self-sufficient. There are some other, you know, peer, musician peers, probably, probably other people that she, you know, met around in the scene or met in college that played on it, but a whole lot of it is just her ideas, trying things out. And it has, I think one reason why it just feels like it's bursting with possibilities is that, you know, this is an artist who's standing on the cusp of, of adulthood, really, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, not too long out of college, 
thinking back to um, unresolved, unresolved feelings and stories and experiences from high school and college and making sense of of those things and making sense of who she is as a person. I mean, she identifies not only as Latinx, but also as queer and um, gender fluid and uses uses they them pronouns, too. And all of that is just sort of being worked out in the artistic process. And I mean, in Night Drive, when you hear on the chorus, those octave apart vocals, high and and low, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's a deliberate kind of artistic expression of playing around with it with androgynous sounding vocal performance, you know? So there are just, there's so many things that are exciting to hear Julia Gomez experimenting with. We have a clip from that interview you did with her when you sat down to talk. Let's take a listen. I'm gay. So like, yeah, uh, I would just totally crush on unavailable people because they had boyfriends and I wanted the music, the production to capture that emotion too. I mean, it's just like a lot of that yearning that I've felt a long time and uh, letting myself really just come into my identity, I think is going to heal a lot of the pain that I actually felt in this album. There's a lot of pain going on, and but I'm working on uh, feeling more whole. And I think the first step to feeling whole is to acknowledge your hurt, to own it, to own your hurt, to own your ugly, to own your scars, but also to own your beauty and to own your strength. Owning your ugly as well as your beauty. That's very powerful. Now, Julie, where is a place in Julia's work that exemplifies that non-duality, embracing all parts of her pain and her joy? Well, in in that particular clip, I think Julia was speaking about a specific song called Your Girl. Um, but it's it's also, I mean, throughout throughout everything in the and all all of the songwriting and the title track, which is called Aren't We All So Incomplete? And it turned in that particular song, um, the vocals turn from first person, like talking about, um, you know, I think there, there's a line that really struck me that's it's like I'm a I'm a freak. I'm a coward or something like like that. Just sifting through all of these all of these emotions that are coming coming up to the surface, and then she pivots to using collective language and mm. saying, "Aren't we all so incomplete?" And I think that is that's something to me that's really powerful about where Julia Gomez is coming from, because it's like owning these stories and feelings and sentiments, the specifics of them, but also connecting them in a much broader emotional way. That you know, which is what great pop music can do. So that's that's why I feel like there's just infinite potential. All right. So since it is August after all, can you give us a preview of WNXP's Artist of the Month? I'm glad that you asked that today because today, in fact, WNXP just announced the Artist of the Month, the Nashville Artist of the Month for August, which is Kashana, um, singer-songwriter, educator, leader in so many ways, leader of a a vocal trio, leader in very community-minded ways. And I first interviewed her in 2015. It's possible I may have done the first or at least one of the first features um, on her after she moved to Nashville. Let's take a little taste of her style. Here's a clip from Kishana Armstrong's song, Listen. 
I'm pouring out my heart Cause I want you to see it I know you're picking me apart But you ain't gotta speak it Why don't you What should we be on the lookout for with her? Well, uh, you know, there there are a couple of signals buried in that very song that, that I'm going to try and tease out when I interview her and do features on her. Um, this month, one of those is just where she's where she's singing it from, um, you know, compelling people to listen. It's not it's not so much that she's saying just listen to me. She's saying listen to each other, listen to listen to the specifics of people's stories, because at one point in time she worked as a music therapist. That was kind of the you know, where she almost cut her teeth as a as a songwriter was going in and listening to people who had not felt heard and had experienced all kinds of things and all kinds of pain and helping them search for the words to articulate that, however simple, you know, I mean, that's a, when you start with that as your point of origin and then expand out from there to, to build your own body of work as a singer songwriter. I mean, I think that just kind of bakes into your philosophy and empathy, ability to listen, ability to tell stories, and a real understanding of the power of what a song can do. Mm-hmm. And and also you hear those three voices, that that's the trio on that on that track, and that's a sound that she has distinctly developed during her time in Nashville. Um, every time you see Kashana perform, that is part of it, and that's a reason why she and her fellow singers are are often asked to sing with with other artists, too. Okay, that is Julie Height, editorial director at our sister station, WNXP. Head to WNXP.org to hear all the latest content. Julie, as always, thanks for coming on to the show today and putting us on to these great artists. You are so welcome. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet one local woman who has dedicated her life to caring for loved ones with Huntington's disease. Do you live with Huntington's or care for someone who does? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Huntington's is a rare disease, one you might not be familiar with. It's a progressive brain disorder. It can affect your movements, your mood, and thinking skills. And it's fatal. Scientists and health experts still have a lot to figure out about the rare degenerative disease. But what is it like to live with it and to care for someone who does? My next guest can offer her experience as a guide. Eva Angelino Romero lost her grandmother and mother to the disease. She's HD negative, but has dedicated her life to caring for her loved ones. She serves as president of Tennessee's chapter of the Huntington's Disease Society of America. Eva, welcome to This is Nashville. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Can you just start by telling our listeners, what is Huntington's disease? Huntington's disease is a genetic neurological um, terminal disease. Um, The best way to describe it is uh, Parkinson's, ALS, and um, dementia all rolled into one. That's the best way. I can describe that. And it's rare. And uh, if one of your parents has the disease, you have a 50-50 chance of carrying it. Wow. When is the first onset of symptoms typically? Uh, There's two types. There's a juvenile Huntington's disease that can start uh, as early as preteen, teenage years. And then there's um, the the symptoms for, for, I would say, most people, at least in my generations, has been uh, 30s, uh, uh, early 40s. Um, it really depends on a lot of things on your CAG, which is more of a genetic of, of, of how your uh, how the disease is mutated. But it really it's around 30s, early 40s, like your career, your career years. What's it like to live with Huntington's disease? You know, it looks different for everybody, but I think the hardest part, uh, at least what I've experienced, is um, the loss of uh, independence. Uh, It's very difficult because in your 30s and your 40s, that's when you're starting. A lot of people just start off their careers and you're already having executive thinking um, issues. You're already having uh, issues with memory or and sometimes mobility at that point. So it's very hard, I think, for, for my experience is, is losing that independence and needed help, needing help from someone else mm-hmm. and really accepting that this is the fate. Um, and unfortunately, it is progressive. So there is no there's no stopping the disease. It just progresses. And I think that's the hardest part, accepting that um, and just just planning for care at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Recently, our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, talked with psychiatrist Dr. Mary Edmondson, who not only works in HD advocacy, but at one point thought she herself actually had Huntington's. Her father died from the disease, and Dr. Edmondson hadn't planned a day in her life past the age of 40. Then, in a twist, testing did become available. Here she is describing what it was like to receive the good news that she was negative. So my son was like four or five. He was the sweetest thing. I'm like bawling my eyes out when I get my test results. And my four-year-old comes up, jumps in my lap, and he said, Mommy, I know you thought you were sick, but I always knew you weren't. And he said, don't worry, I'll always take care of you. And I went, I don't want you to have to take care of me. But (laughs) some people call it survivor guilt. I really don't. I think it's, it's really about reframing your identity um, to something different than what you expected. Hmm. Eva, some of Mary's story is familiar to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) At at one point, you thought you might be HD positive. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. My mother at the time, when we found out what Huntington's disease was for many years, we thought it was Parkinson's disease because of the movement. Um, It was just my generation. My mom refused to get tested. She didn't want to get tested. So I had to go through the possibility of, you know, me having it. I had to get tested and, and, um, you know, I did. And it was a very hard thing to do. I had to sit my family down and explain to them what Huntington's disease was. And I was going to get tested 
Um, so I was the one that started it in my family to just kind of bring that awareness and say, hey, um, it's up to you, but I, I think it's a good idea to get tested. So yeah, I remember getting tested, going by myself, nobody went with me um, and getting the results and being like, just a sigh of relief, you know, at that time, I only had one one daughter. And that was my biggest concern, you know, because I knew she was at risk. What was the yeah. reaction of your your sisters when you brought up this discovery to them? How did they accept this news in considering that, hey, this is something our mother may have? And this is something that yeah. we may have ourselves. It was a very hard discussion. And it was a, a very sad we were all in disbelief. They were all in disbelief. Like, how is this possible? Why do we, why are we finding about this now? There was a lot of disbelief. Uh, they had to go through their own journey doing research, just like I did. I Googled Huntington's disease. That's how I found out what it was. Mm -hmm. I did not have no idea. Um, there was a lot of information uh, about 12, 15 years ago when I, I found out. Um, but, you know, I think we went through a denial, like, no, this can't happen. They all at their own time decided they were going to get tested or not get tested. It was a very personal decision. Some of them didn't feel that they needed to get tested because, you know, when we found out they were still very young, you know, you know some of them are in their twenties still. So they were like, well, I'm not, I'm not symptomatic. Why should I even get tested? So everybody kind of, yeah, but it was a very hard hard discussion and just a lot of denial, a lot of disbelief. Yeah. Um, it was difficult. You grew up in Los Angeles with your mom and your five sisters. Tell me a little bit more about your family. Tell me about your mom. My mom, um, my mom was from Mexico. Um, she came to this country when she was an immigrant. She was about 15, 16 years old. Um, came here in like the early seventies, started working at a factory met my father, became a young teen mom in LA, very difficult uh, for her. She didn't um, understand the language. She only spoke Spanish. And unfortunately at 16, when she met my father, my father was a little older, not much, but they were both teenagers really when they started working at this factory. Mm -hmm. They met and they had my older sister at, my mom was only 17 and I was born right away, 10 months after at 18. So my mom had two young children at 18. And unfortunately, it was very um, in an abusive relationship with my father. It was a very hard way to grow up because my mom was young and had to raise two daughters. She, for, a, for a moment there, she wanted she thought she was going to give me, me up for adoption because it was so young and just going through so much. Um, she opted to keep, you know, keep us and it continued, unfortunately, a roller coaster ride with my father for many, many years. But when I found out that she had HD and what that entailed, um, I, I chose a different route. I had to choose between making amends with her and taking care of her and finding compassion um, because I could see that a lot of the things she was doing was probably due to the disease, some of it I could, I could attribute, and maybe some of it was for just her upbringing. So I opted for a road of forgiveness and, um, the last maybe 10 years of my life with her with the best years of my life, even though she struggled with HD and I had to take care of her, I bonded with my mother like never before because she was a different person as well. She started losing a lot of her ability to do things and I had to take care of her and, I just my compassion grew. Just to reflect on that, you know, I feel a lot of times when we talk about the sacrifice that 
family members or friends make in becoming the primary caretaker for someone, we talk as if we're losing something, but it seems to me like you've gained something because this is not only a, a, a healed relationship with your mother, but you also expressed what I believe is probably the purest and most uh, unconditional form of love in sacrificing these things for your mother and your sisters. Yeah, you know, I I didn't see it that way back then. I have to say, I cried a lot. I was like, God, why me? You know, I thought that I had gone through a lot in life already. I really don't, yeah, Huntington's disease really, you know, you go through the denial and all that. Mm-hmm. To the victimization, you know, or just the feeling of like, why me? Then I realized, you know, I got to take a different route. And, um, you know, a lot of prayer, uh, meditation, a lot of good people around me, um, and just my faith, you know, realizing that I could opt to take this and change it into a positive as much as possible or not. And when I made that decision, uh, my life changed. Um, My relationship changed with my mom. And yes, it's a lot of sacrifice, but it was worth every minute. I mean, every day was different with her living with HD. You know, you don't know what you're going to get with HD, unfortunately. It's not like every person that has HD, it doesn't look the same. How did your husband feel about your decision to move your your mom here mm-hmm. and to become the primary caretaker yeah. for her and your sister? You know, it, it, he's a very traditional, he also comes from like, you take care of your family, that's what you do. He actually encouraged me to take care of my mom when I was like not wanting to take care of my mom. He's mm-hmm. like, you can't shut your doors to your family. You know, as yeah. much as I, he knew my background, he would just, he just, he, he understood. So he encouraged me. Once she lived with us, it was very hard, obviously, um, very difficult, but he was very patient. And that's another thing that uh, the family doesn't sign up for. It's like you find out you have HD, you're already with your partner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're already, you just give them the set of news. You have to have a lot of boundaries and realize what can I do and what can I not do? Because um, it can really impact your relationship and your kids, you know? So I was able to have boundaries and have support um, from people around me to say, hey, that's something maybe you shouldn't do. If you can't do it, don't do it. Because I think as a caregiver, sometimes you self-sacrifice your own self-care for caring for other people. As you mentioned and alluded to, this disease changes how we approach, have to approach our lives, especially if you're planning to have children, you know, knowing that they can be at risk. You have children. You know, what are your conversations like with your kids? about this disease? So for me, being that, um, thank golly, I was negative, you know, obviously my children are not at risk, but yet they will still have to endure the fact that my sisters and their children might have the disease. So it will impact, HD will impact their lives no matter what, because I'm already seeing it in our lives now with my older sister uh, that has five children and they're all at risk because she is positive. Um, and they, you know, it's a hard thing. And then they're at the age where they can have children and it is a very personal decision. We've talked about this, you know, my role as an advocate for my family and for others is to bring awareness. Obviously there's a lot of uh, mixed feelings about having children. If you are at risk, some people opt to have children, even though they know they're at risk and some people are not okay with that, you know? Um, I've always been in the stance of like, I encourage, uh, you know, if you are at risk to look at resources and possibly, you know, 
get tested if you can. If you're thinking of family planning, there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, but some people don't think that's, you know, they don't opt for that. And you have to respect everybody's journey. And I deal with that in, within my family all the time because we have mixed feelings about it. So it, it's a hard thing to, I have my personal decisions, decision and, and opinions on this and they do. So I think there's so much out there now that will allow you to have children. Um, I follow a couple of groups that, you know, IVF, you know, science has allowed uh, you to have an HD free baby, you know, if that's what you opt to do. But some people don't want to go that route. So it's just for me, when I found out, I knew that I I would be okay. And I just had a, a, another a child, but I knew I was at risk. So I opted for it. You know, if it would have been the other way around, I would have opted for the science. And mm. it's just, I just think it just depends. Some people disagree with me and I've, I've accepted that that's, that's their journey. You know, I just, I just hate to know as a family member taking care of other people within your family with HD, I have felt it's a responsible thing to do to educate your family. I'm constantly educating my nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. And now I have to do with their children about this disease. What do you yeah. want people to know about HD who support family members or friends who have the disease? I just, uh, honestly, to, it's it's okay to reach out and get the help. I've met people throughout everywhere, the world with mm -hmm. this, especially um, Spanish-speaking uh, communities, because it is a little bit more rare to have um, resources in Spanish or in other languages so people don't understand. But yeah, just, just being out there and... and being supportive with one another. You just mentioned some resources. Can you list a few of them that are available yeah. for people here in Tennessee? I would say uh, the best starting uh, point would be the Huntington's Disease um, Clinic uh, Center of Excellence. Vanderbilt has a great um, clinic there. They have social workers in place, doctors that are very knowledgeable with Huntington's disease. Uh, I know there's one here in, in Nashville, and I, there's another center in Memphis um, that, that uh, supports families uh, with, with Huntington. So that would be my starting place here in Tennessee. That is Eva Angelina Romero, president of Tennessee's chapter of the Huntington's Disease Society of America. Eva, thank you for joining us today. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll pick up on those resources Eva mentioned, starting with the Level 1 Center of Excellence for Huntington's Disease Care, right here in Nashville. Are you or someone you love living with HD? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we heard from Eva Angelino Romero, the president of Tennessee's chapter of the Huntington's Disease Society of America. She shared with us some of the challenges of caring for her mother who was diagnosed with the disease in her 60s. My next guest shares that experience of caring for his mother. And he was also diagnosed with Huntington's himself in 2016. Chris Brown, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. So I understand you recently celebrated a birthday, right? I did. I turned uh, 38 All right. on July 20th. Happy birthday, my friend. How does it feel? 
Oh, um, bittersweet, but it felt great. <laughs> so tell me, when did your mom start showing symptoms of HD? Um, around the age of um, 38, 37, 38. Mm. Yeah. Is, is that partially why you experience a little bittersweetness about your 38th birthday yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I was tested um, in 2016 and uh, my CAG chromosome repeat was 44. And so, um, and um, statistically, if you get Huntington's from your uh, mother's side, your onset, if um, the research shows that it tends to be closer to the time that they, um, that your mom's onset was. So having watched her for 14 years, it's just, you know, embedded in me that, you know, it's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm at the door. The door is open. I think I've like, I felt like I walked through the door when I turned 38. Tell me, what is your family's history with the disease? Um, so my mom, she was a uh, foster child and they, um, she had a lot, a lot of siblings and they were um, all separated when they were put into the foster care system. And so my, um, my mom uh, met my dad in high school. They got married right out of high school and they had my sister. And then um, three years later, they had me. And, um, and so she had no idea about Huntington's. And so we, we were just um, blindsided when she started just changing like before our eyes and uh, we had no idea what was happening. It was, um, it was just really, it was, yeah, very weird. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds similar to our, our guest we had previously, Eva Angelino Romero. When you were listening to Eva's story, is there anything that really truly resonated with you? Well, I kind of when she um, when she said that she has the, um, the sisters that have all have um, Huntington's. I thought about my mom because I um, after we my mom was finally diagnosed at a um, at a mental hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She was diagnosed and. As she was, as the doctor was diagnosing her, telling us what was wrong with her, what she had tested positive for, he then turned to me and said, um, "And you're and you're also at risk for this as well. You have um, you have a 50-50 chance of having this as well." Mm. And and my after the next year, me and my dad did some digging and digging and found out that she, my mom, we got in touch with five of my mom's sisters, and they all were. Um, well, four sisters and a brother, and we found out that they were all um, sick with HD. So when you've discovered that the disease is hereditary, what was going through your mind? At that time, we were so in invested in mom. I, um, I didn't have time to like go that route. Yes, I heard the words and yes, it affected me. But, and like I, me and my dad, I remember we got in the car, came out of the hospital, got in the car and we just cried. It was a, um, it was a Sunday evening and we just, and it was raining and we just sat in the car and like just cried and cried and cried. And I got home and I Googled Huntington's and the website I was reading was as if 
somebody had come into our house and written down everything that we've been going through for the past, I don't know how many years at that point, and just wrote it and just made a website based off of what had been going on in our house. And I um, I was at college at the time and I just, you know, pushed it away and just, you know, stayed focused on school and going home on the weekends and take, helping my dad out with my mom. And um, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't have let it affect me at the time, you know, because we were, it was her, it was all about her. What was, what was that moment in time like? for you and your father as you were both, you know, dedicating so much time and energy to care for her? It was, um, it was beyond hard. It was just imagine, imagine watching somebody slowly for 14 years, just lose every single inch piece, smaller than an inch, just a millimeter. You're watching layer by millimeter by millimeter just being taken away from them their abilities things that we don't even realize functions we have that we don't even realize we have like controls and and uh, abilities just things that we that make us a human being just being stripped away for 14 years and because i feel like this to me the hardest part is the time um Cause you just, it's agonizing just watching somebody just constantly changing and you're constantly having to adapt. We were like everybody in the HD space talked about how we just adapt. Like the caregivers, you're just constantly changing. Like the lady said before, no, um, it's never, um, no two people are the same with HD and like, and also as the, as the disease progresses, you never, you are always, you never know what you're going to wake up to the next day. And that sounds like an exaggeration, but in reality, it, it isn't. I mean, you would, she would have mood swings and she would have the, um, her lack of, um, judgment and her, um, decision-making and her, um, you know, will to like thrive and, be productive, just all the things she loved to do. She was um, she was really a good cook. She was a really good cook. And mm-hmm. uh, we would cook in the kitchen and and she was a seamstress and she um and she loved flowers and gardening in the yard. She um had friends and I just watched her lose her friends because she would change. Her personality changed and they didn't and um just I just you're just constantly watching them like lose I understand this is very difficult for you, and I appreciate you sharing with us. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about Huntington's disease with people who have lived experience with the degenerative neurological condition. I'd like to introduce my next guests. Dr. Daniel Clawson is director of the Huntington's Disease Clinic at Vanderbilt. He's joined by Amy Abbott. Thanks to you both for being here. Now, Amy, I'd like to start with you. I understand that you recently lost your husband, Jody, to the disease. And first, we want to extend our deepest condolences to you and your family. Can you tell us a little bit about Jody? Yes, thank you so much for having us. Um, it's important to spread the awareness. Uh, Jody passed away 14 days ago. So um, 
it's it's been a long grieving process. I'll be honest. Uh, just like Chris and Eva said, when you are diagnosed, it's you go through various different stages. Jody was a vibrant uh, drummer, musician. He was the drummer for Fuel and for Breaking Point, a band out of Memphis. Mm -hmm. And to see him decline and waste away mentally and physically was, it's tragic, truly. You know, I know this is, has to be very, very difficult for you to talk about. And I'm grateful that you're willing to share your story. But, and tell us, what was part of the hardest part of his journey with Huntington's? Uh, again, you go through different stages. He was in denial for a really long time and did not want to get tested or be tested. Um, his brother and sister both have Huntington's disease. His brother committed suicide from the disease. And that was kind of the turning point in Jody's life that made him decide to get tested because he knew if he was positive, then we need to be proactive about maybe making some changes financially or we, uh, Jody owned a business. Um, we have two children. So, uh, he just, mm, it was a very, very difficult decision. And, uh, like everyone else, you just leave and you sit in the car and cry. Um, it's, I feel like it's a death sentence. A lot of people don't see it that way, but I truly just believe it is because there's no cure and like, there's no two people that have the same symptoms. So you really are navigating this situation by yourself and on your own, even though I can call Eva and talk to her about it or call Chris and talk to him about it, they can relate similarly. But there's, again, if you meet one Huntington's disease patient, you've only met one because the symptoms present differently in everyone. Now, Dr. Clausen, earlier in the show, Eva mentioned our level one center of excellence. What does that mean exactly? So at Vanderbilt, we've been uh, taking care of Huntington's patients for uh, a long time, but really over the last decade, we've integrated our efforts to really focus on three things. One is providing the best clinical care uh, for, for people in Middle Tennessee and surrounding areas. Two is providing research uh, opportunities for patients to have access to new clinical trials for medications that might slow or stop or alter the progression of disease or improve symptoms. And three is to provide important education both for our patients and families, but also for other providers. And so as part of this, we ha have what's called an HDSA, Huntington's Disease Society of America Center of Excellence. And so these centers of excellence are dedicated to these goals, but also promise to provide interdisciplinary care. So when you see one of us, you're not just gonna see a neurologist, you're gonna see someone that helps you with your psychiatric symptoms or your movement problems or your uh, speech problems, or your swallowing issues. and and for level one, what we've done is we've really tried to expand our care across the state of Tennessee. So we partner with uh, sites in Chattanooga and Knoxville, where we're able to provide uh, a kind of a broader reach where we integrate with those sites, provide uh, educational opportunities for, for patients through those sites, provide research opportunities at all those sites. And so that's really what level one means. We're, we were, we've developed a hub and spoke model of care that really serves uh, the entire state of Tennessee, or at least as close as we can get to the entire ten state of Tennessee. Now, we just heard from Amy, Chris, and Eva earlier about the discovery that they or a family member has HD. How does your clinic really help people adapt to that news that they or a loved one is HD positive? 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the hardest decisions for a human to make is whether or not they want to get tested for Huntington's disease uh, gene. Uh, and usually, you know, there's there's probably three ways that people come to our clinic. The first way is that they have symptoms and they want to get genetic testing to confirm their symptoms. Uh, they may have a family history and they're thinking about, um, you know, starting a family or, or getting married and they want to know whether or not they have you know, genetic uh, symptom, genetic marker of Huntington's disease. And then, and then the third one is that, you know, someone has symptoms and it may or may not be HD and they come to see us, we do an evaluation. So in that, in that case where there are people that are getting at-risk genetic testing, um, they're usually, the, the phenotype is usually younger folks, kind of in their mid-20s or so. And, you know, we, what we usually do is we meet with them with a genetic counselor uh, and a neurologist, and we just talk about Huntington's. Uh, we might do an exam on the patient to see whether or not they do or don't have clinical symptoms that are consistent with Huntington's disease, and we'll counsel them about the pros and cons of getting tested. Uh, there are some uh, folks that will come to us for three or four or five years and decide to get tested then. There are others that come in and say, I know I want to get tested. I, I want you to take me, help me get through that process. And they're very, you know, uh, pretty concrete on wanting to get tested and we help them uh, go through that process. The one thing that we do that's a little different than other centers is that we do what's called random, uh, sorry, um, um, we, we don't put their medical records in a chart. So you can do what's called a blinded genetic testing. So, you know, the patient will come in and we'll actually give uh, a pseudonym uh, and, um, We'll, you know, get the genetic testing, but we won't put it in the medical record so that they mm -hmm. have control over that information. And that's not part of the you know, electronic medical record. And that's one thing that we've really tried to do to give patients that sense of autonomy and control over the information that they're uh, that they're getting. Now, Chris Brown is still with us. Chris, you ran a support group for people living with HD. You know, what are some of the things you all discussed about adjusting to the reality of the of the disease? Chris, you with us? Amy, let me switch oh, yes, to you. Sir, I okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, we would um, have a every Thursday night. Well, every one, every two Thursday nights, we would have a um, just a us in our mid twenties. Um, I think I was the oldest, being like mid thirties at the time, and we would just sit around and um, sometimes we would talk about HD and. Um, and because some people were tested and some people weren't. So a lot of times we would talk about testing and like um, where people were with their decision on getting tested and to not get tested because it's such a personal um, decision. And once you have that information, you can't um, give it back. And it's, um, it's life-changing when you hear that, um, get that news. And so we would uh, mostly just, the young adults would be people who were like sharing their stories on getting tested, or um, just trying to um, just support someone in their where they were on their journey. Mm -hmm. Amy, have you been able to find support? Yes, I actually do run the Memphis uh, support group here in Tennessee, and we focus more on building relationships with one another. Um, we did had um, you know professional speakers come in at some point but we just found it more valuable to walk alongside one another and there's various 
stages in our group, um, mothers who have lost children or uh, spouses who have lost other spouses and have are now remarried. Um, it's been very invaluable. And that's how Chris and I actually met one another is he joined uh, our support group here in Memphis. Now, you have two biological children with Jody. How have they faced this knowing that there's a 50% chance that they have HD? So Jody probably started showing symptoms in 2012. He didn't really get tested till 2016. So my children were in their preteens. So I'll say they pretty much grew up with the disease. And I'm very uh, much an advocate for education and knowledge and being proactive. Uh, so uh, we talk a lot about getting tested. Um, I'll be honest, my daughter is in her early 20s and she um, went to Vanderbilt and did an anonymous test that Dr. Clausen was speaking about, um, and she's negative. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was just important for her. Um, my son is only 18, and he really doesn't discuss it. So again, it's everyone's choice, but I am... Um, they know how I feel strongly about uh, family planning and um, just talking openly about the disease and let's, let's educate people about it. Um, we're not going to hide from it. Chris, you know, what do you want people to know about HD? We've got 30 seconds. Where can they find help? There's so many ways to find help. Just um, go online, look up a local chapter, HDSA um, chapter in your area, or just look up a center of excellence um, um, in your area. Um, tell somebody about Huntington's. Just just know about it. Nothing um, hurts my heart more than to know my mom died from something that she suffered from for 14 years. And then when I tell somebody about it, they say, oh, what is Huntington's? And so there's just just awareness and um, making it um, known to the world that like we exist and we need help as a um, community to um, find a cure or treatment. That is Chris Brown. He was joined by Amy Abbott and Dr. Daniel Clausen with the Huntington's Disease Clinic at Vanderbilt. I want to thank you all for coming on to the show today and sharing your stories and journeys with us. Really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's Nashville Nightlife, but the Sober Edition. We'll round up the best options for those of us who don't drink. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Jeremy Scott Bills. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>